so don't die while I'm preaching. Okay, that's good. Good advice. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn in them with me to Romans chapter 3. It's great to be with you all this morning. This is our first trip south of Phoenix. So, and it's great to sing things about prayers in the desert. I have a prayer when I'm in the desert, uh, and it's not that spiritual. It's usually, Lord, let it be cooler. And he's answering my prayer. It's amazing. For some reason, he never answers that prayer until October. But it's great to be with Grady. Grady is uh, such a joy to have around at the seminary. It, it, we, we've been able to, to grow a friendship in the last couple of years, um, and it's just wonderful to, to worship with you and see um, your congregation. And to know, I hope you know this, you have an awesome pastor. I don't know if every church realizes they have an awesome pastor, but you do. And it's great to, uh, to worship with you all. So let's, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, as we reflect this morning on the work that you've done through your church, the work that you did 500 years ago this month to remind people of the greatness of the gospel, to remind them that it's not their effort, it's the work of Christ. To remind them it's not how great or smart they are, but on the faith that they have in Christ and in his work. Father, we need ears to hear this morning. We need hearts that are receptive to your word. For those who came in this morning, maybe who don't know you, God, I pray that you will change them this morning, that the Spirit will come and convict. For those who have just grown tired in their faith, Lord, may this be a period of refreshment for them this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Occasionally there is an unexpected weather that, that moves in, that changes the course of human history. Uh, one, one might think of 1619 and Rene Descartes. He's on his way to a royal wedding, and a big snowstorm sets in, and he's got to set up for the night in a hotel in Ulm. And it's in that hotel room that he comes up with his famous dictum, cogito ergo sum, I think, Therefore, I am. And it kind of sparks this idea of what we know of as the Enlightenment. Or you can think of 1588. The Spanish Armada has set sail against England. They're going to invade. And a major storm blows up and dashes their armada to pieces. And England is saved. Or one thinks of July 2nd, 1505, when there was another accidental providence of weather. A heavy storm broke out in Erfurt, Germany, and there was a young 21-year-old law student caught out in the storm, thunders all around, lightning's crashing down. In fact, one bolt of lightning hits so close, it knocks him off of his horse. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of panic and fear, he cries out, save me, Saint Anne, I'll become a monk. Twelve days later, he does. He leaves his promising law career, and he enters into a monastery, and the world is changed. You may know that this is the story of Martin Luther. When Luther entered the monastery, he tried everything he could to earn God's favor. He was always nervous that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he tried, God was still angry at him. He would later say, if anyone would feel the greatness of sin, he would not be able to go on living another moment. So great is the power of sin. 
And he would spend hours in the confession every week. He would go in and for, for hours on end be confessing everything he could think of. And then he would leave confession and walk out and think, I forgot to mention this. Or I had another sinful thought. And he would rush back in to confess it in case he would die at any moment and have unconfessed sin in his life. His spiritual mentor, Johann von Staupitz, would say to him, Martin, why don't you at least go do something worth confessing? You're not even sinning right. Like, go out and actually do something sinful and then come back and confess that sin. That's fine. But quit bringing this piddly stuff to me. But what Martin Luther knew is there's really no piddly sin to God. He felt the weight of every sin he ever committed. But this all changed for Martin. Around 1515, 1516, he began lecturing at the university. And he lectured on the Psalms and through Romans. And then he came across... Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And it changed his life and changed the world. Here's what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at the Wittenberg Church. And the Protestant Reformation was born. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful to be at a church this morning that takes that seriously and wants to walk you through uh, these different periods of the Reformation and these important doctrines that come from it. The five keys that, that Grady already mentioned. Sola Scriptura, we believe in Scripture alone is our final authority. Sola Gratia, faith, or grace alone rather, is what saves us. Solus Christus. Christ alone, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. And the one we're going to talk about this morning is sola fide. Faith alone is what saves us. This is what kicked off the Reformation. When Martin Luther made this discovery, it totally revolutionized his life and his theology. If you've been around church for a long time, you know this. You've heard so much on salvation by faith, 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 so much so that it can kind of become stale in our minds. It can just ring hollow in our ears, and yet it is the very foundation, a bedrock of your salvation is faith. It's the gospel that he rediscovers. It's the gospel that's powerful enough to save a self-righteous German monk, and it's the same gospel that's powerful enough to save a self-righteous Maricopian, if that's what you all call yourselves. I don't know what you call yourselves, but we'll go with Maricopian this morning. So it's fitting. It's fitting that we remember history. We remember the great acts of God through great people throughout the church's history. And so this morning, I want to drive at one main simple point, and that is this. Faith is all that can make us right with God. Faith is all that can make us right with God. Let's pick up in our text in verse 19. Chapter 3 of Romans. Now that we know, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth might be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. From this passage, I want us to ask one primary question, and that is this. Why is faith alone so important? Why is faith alone central to understanding salvation rightly? Before we go there, though, I think it's important that we define what faith is. Faith is really misunderstood by a lot of people, both inside and outside the church. Uh, When I was a paramedic, I spent 10 years as a paramedic, and um, it, it was basically locking two people into an ambulance for 24 hours and gave a lot of gospel opportunity. So it's kind of one of those things like, you're going to hear the gospel today. Do you want it now? Do you want your coffee first? We're going to be talking about this in the next time of captivity together. And and so we would talk about these things, and I I would bring up salvation by faith. The whole thing that makes the gospel the gospel is that it's faith alone. And he would say to me, faith is believing against evidence. And I would tell him, that is a wonderful definition of stupidity. To believe against evidence is ridiculous. Who does that? No, faith, according to the Bible, is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. As the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 11.1, 1, or in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Or as Paul said in Romans 14.23, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So faith is actually this certainty that we can have that what God has said and spoken is true. So why faith? I've got a couple reasons for this reasons for this this morning. Why faith? First, the law is too weak. Look back at verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here Paul is talking about the Old Testament law. Jews reading this letter in the church would have thought, I can be saved by obeying the commands of God. There's 613 Old Testament commands, and if I can keep those and check off those boxes, then I'll be right with God. And I can do that. 1,500 years later, Martin Luther saw the same thing in the Catholic Church. If I get baptized, if I'm part of the church, if I take the Eucharist, if I obey the Pope, by doing these outward acts of obedience, I can make God happy. But there are several things that Paul says about the law here that show why the law is too weak to save, why it is we need faith. The first, the the law stops the mouth. God's law doesn't change. It's an expression of his perfection. Every mouth is closed because we're guilty of breaking the law. Ignorance of the law is even no excuse for breaking it. When we first moved to Phoenix, uh, we lived in Gilbert, and uh, on the way to church, we'd have to drive right by downtown Gilbert. So the intersection of Gilbert and Elliott, if you're familiar. And that's a speed trap. It's like the only place in Gilbert that the speed limit goes from 45 to 35. And we hadn't been here long long enough to know better, but not very long. And I thought I was past that point, and I was getting back up to about 45 when you pulled over on our way to church one Sunday morning. And I pleaded my relative ignorance with the police officer. I batted my pretty eyes. 
I may have shed a tear. I pulled out actually my old Kentucky license. Officer, I have not been here very long. And there's no excuse for breaking the law. It's posted. I broke the law. He did let us out. I guess I have a very good tearful act. But disobedience of the law is disobedience. Ignorance of the law is disobedience. And God's law is far greater than that. Whenever you break God's law, you're offending an infinite God. And so there's, there's an infinite law breaking there. Every mouth is closed in his presence. No one will stand before God one day and plead innocence. The law is too weak. The law keeps us accountable. Now that there's law, there's accountability that comes along with the law. Also, the law cannot justify. Do you notice that Paul said that? We come across this, this term. It's, it's a bit of a technical theological term. It basically means this. To be justified in, before God is to be considered right. And it means that your sins are forgiven on the one hand, and the righteousness of Christ is given to you. That's what we mean by justification. And Paul's whole point is to be made right with God. It requires God to be part of this, God to forgive sin, God to give imputation of righteousness. It is not up to you. You're completely unable to earn the favor of God by your life. Do we have any perfect people in the room this morning? Grady is a big old sinner. I, I praised him before, but I know his many faults. Amen. amen. That'll be the only amen this morning, but it's at your expense. I'm okay with that. If you think you're going to stand before God and give a testimony of how great you are, you are sorely mistaken. James says, whoever keeps the law yet stumbles at one point is a lawbreaker. Once you're a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker. Once you commit one sin, you're guilty of breaking all the law. I I had an opportunity at work one time, back when I was a paramedic again. um, A a lady wanted me to share the gospel with her friend on the phone. So I I take the phone, and and one of the things I do, you're probably familiar with this, is I walk through the Ten Commandments. So everybody kind of sees this is a good standard. There's only ten rules. Some of them are pretty outlandish. I think I can keep them pretty well. So you start with murderer, right? You, you ever murdered somebody? No. Of course I've not killed somebody. And then what do you do? You move to what Jesus says. If anybody has hate in their heart towards somebody, they've committed murder. Have you ever in your life hated somebody in your heart? No. Okay. What about adultery? Have you ever committed adultery? Of course not. I love my husband. Well, Jesus says if you've ever looked with somebody with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Think back. Teenage years, last month, have you ever had a fleeting thought of lust in your heart? No. Never in my life. Okay. Have you ever lied before? No. Well, I said, you're lying to me right now. You've definitely had a lustful thought. You've definitely had hate in your heart towards people before. So you've definitely lied. Click. She hung up on me. That was the end of the conversation. Maybe the Lord used that. I'm not sure. And we laugh at this because we know everybody's kind of broken these. But the, but the reality is 
every person in this room is guilty of breaking all ten, ten commandments. So even when we say, I'm a pretty self-righteous person, I'm pretty good, when I look around at the chaos of the culture around me, I'm way better than that. God probably loves me more when he looks at my life as compared to all these other hooligans out there. And the reality is you've broken all the same commands everybody has. The law can't help. Why can't the law help? Because the purpose of the law, this one might come as a shock to you, but the law makes us aware of sin. God gave us the law so that we would know sin, so that sin might increase. He gave us the law so that sin would increase. Romans 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. Why would God want to increase our sin? Have you ever thought about that? You probably thought he gave us the law so we'd sin less, so we'd know what to do and we would do it. But that's not how the law works. When you give somebody a law, they want to break it. Anybody with kids knows that. Anybody with grandkids, kids, you know if I give them a rule, they're going to do whatever they can to nudge up to the line. And as soon as they're nudged up to the line, it's only a matter of time before they hop on over into full-fledged disobedience and sin. And God knows this. We're all like that. I'm going to give them law, and they're going to say, God, we're going to do it. Remember this? He gives them the Old Testament law. We will do everything you say, God, until the next day when they're breaking it and building golden calves and doing all these other things. God gave the law to increase sin so that his grace could outshine the darkness of sin. God wanted to display his great power over sin. So if I give them law and they become lawbreakers, they will recognize their need for me. They will recognize their need for grace and they'll repent. The law is too weak. The law is too weak. For many of us that we know this, we know the gospel is grace alone and faith alone. Our, our heads are rightly fixated on grace and faith. But if we look at our lives, they're often directed at fulfilling the law. So what we know, it, grace alone, faith alone, and what we do trying to earn God's favor day by day, week by week, are at odds with one another. We come up with this, this term, right? Legalism. It's the Christianese term that we like to toss around. And, and let me just say this. Sometimes obedience is obedience. It's not legalism. I, I hear a lot of people try to talk about like obedience to God is legalism. That's not. That's doing what God has required of us and asked of us. Legalism is a bit more technical. It means that I am trying to actually earn God's favor for salvation by what I'm doing. It has to do with the motivation of the person who, who's doing it. it. Legalism says I'm accepted because I'm obedient, but the gospel says I'm accepted because Christ was obedient on my behalf. Legalism says I can attain perfection on my own, but the gospel says I'm a broken sinner and I must look outside of myself for perfection. Legalism says I'm better than others, so God must love me more. And the gospel says I'm astonished that God would love such a wretch as me. Circumcision can't save you. Sabbath keeping can't save you. Ritualistic feasts can't save you. Going to church can't save you. Being baptized can't save you. Reading your Bible can't save you. Being a good mother can't save you. Being a good father can't save you. Mowing your neighbor's grass can't save you. Digging wells in Indonesia can't save you. Doing these things, trying to earn the favor of God, is not going to work. Faith alone in the finished work of Christ 
his death and his resurrection is all that can actually save us. And the sad part to me is, is the people who are most prone towards legalism are the last ones to think you're talking about them at a time like this. The hardest hearts often think, that's not me. And there is legalism creeping in. If you're wondering if I'm talking about you at this moment, I am talking about you. Every person in here, the seed of legalism is in your heart. Because of our sinful nature, we're always prone to try to prove to God how great we are and, and try to rest on our own ability. The law can't save. We need faith alone. But notice also, God's righteousness is perfect. Why, why do we need faith alone? God's righteousness is perfect. Verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Many theologians argue that verses 21 through 26 form the, the, uh, the center of the book of Romans. And in many ways, Romans, I think, forms a centerpiece in your New Testament because of the centrality what Paul puts on the gospel. And then the New Testament kind of forms the heartbeat of your Bible. So th- this paragraph right here is one of the most important paragraphs in all of Scripture. And so what we need to see here is people's greatest need. What is, what, what is people's greatest need? To be right with God. I don't care if you're in the Sudan, Southeast Asia, Canada, France, definitely in France probably. Your greatest need is to be made right with God. To be made right with God. We have a problem with this term though. We, we have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and so a lot of times what we're doing is we're working on definitions of words. They're using words, and you're like, mm, not exactly. Probably the word that they miss the most is need. Dad, I need one more TV show. Dad, I need to go get ice cream tonight. Dad, I need to go swimming today. It's never, Dad, I need more Brussels sprouts on my plate. If I'm going to be big and strong and healthy, Dad, I need more vegetables. It's never that, is it? So they use this word need, and every time it's like, okay, I know you want that, but you don't need that. And if you look at your life and you look at the ways that people talk about humanity across the world, we talk about a lot of things that are good for people, and it's right, and it's, it's necessary that we help people in certain ways. But humanity's greatest need is the gospel, Humanity's greatest need is to be made right with God. Paul demonstrates our complete inability and why we need God and how great his righteousness is. Romans 1 is his argument that all Gentiles are sinners. We've exchanged the glory of God for earthly things. And in our culture, the way we see it is in money, power, and sex. We live for retirement and investments. People claw their way up the power chain at any cost. Sex is certainly an idol. I read an article this past week about as America drifts more into secularism, how the reason why we see the sexual revolution from the 60s blossoming into the fruit of death right now is because that's the God for people. They, they're, lurk, they're looking for something transcendent, and that's where they're finding it. So it makes sense of what Paul is saying in Romans 1. And you can imagine the Jews gathered in Rome when they heard this letter, and Paul's just blasting the Gentiles. 
in their self-righteousness, what are they saying? Get them, Paul. Can't even believe they'd show up in church. They're nowhere near as good as us Jews are. So Paul's just warming up. He gets to chapter 2, and what does he do? Goes after the Jews. And he says, you think you can do it by all these rituals that you practice? That's not going to earn you the favor of God. And then he gets to chapter 3, and he's like, if anybody was confused, if there was confusion among anybody, because you still think you don't fit into Jews, Gentiles category, even though that's everybody, all of you are in sin. There's no one righteous. No, not one. No one who understands. No one who seeks after God. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. God's righteousness is to perfect. We need that righteousness though, right? Nobody's going to go to heaven without that righteousness, but it's too great for any of us to attain. Martin Luther knew this, and at one point he said this, I hated that word, righteousness of God, because he knew I can't get that on my own. We can never scale that height. Then Luther came to that recognition To understand the righteousness of God differently. The righteousness of God is what God gives us by faith. When we put our faith in Christ, we get the righteousness of Jesus so that we have the righteousness of God. Because you do need that. You just can't get it on your own. Luther would later say this. Righteousness is that with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. And had entered paradise itself through open gates. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway of heaven. How do we get this righteousness? Through faith. Period. Full stop. End of the story. Nothing added to this. The second you add to it, you lose the entire thing. The law can't save us. We need faith. God's righteousness is so great that we can't do it. We need faith. But notice also, sin's power is too strong. Verse 23. If you've memorized scripture, you probably at least have John 3.16, Romans 3.23 up there. There's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ben Franklin said there are two universal realities. What are they? You know this. Death and taxes. That's right. Death and taxes. But, but let's add a third. Death, taxes, and sin are universal realities. There, there's no distinction. Jews and Gentiles are singers. I have to imagine if Paul was leading children's ministry 2,000 years ago, he'd had all the little children gather on the mat and sang with them, Red and yellow, black and white, they are sinners in his sight. Right? He would have sang this to get kids to realize. Now, we're getting to the other verse. We'll get there. But you have to start with the recognition that you're in sin. We need faith because we can't overcome sin in this life. Luther recognized this within himself. He couldn't overcome sin. It didn't matter how much he prayed, how much he fasted, how much he tortured his body. Sin always finds a way in. And let's just be honest. This is true for you. It's true for your life. Sin creeps in, and it's subtle. And no matter how much you try to beat it out of your life, it comes back. How many of you said, never again? God, I will never do that. 
I will never lash out in anger. I will never have that thought. I will never do that thing. I will never pick up the bottle again. I will, all the time. It comes to a moment of communion, maybe, and you're confessing your sins. Recognize, I can't, I can't believe that was what my week was like. But God, not this week. This week's going to be different. And then you come back to church the next Sunday, and how often are you thinking, I blew it again. And you're promising God your very best righteousness. And it doesn't add up. Sin's power is too strong. Luther had a phrase for this reality, simul justus et peccator, which means we are simultaneously just and sinners. By faith, we have the righteousness of God, yet in our current reality, we will struggle with sin. In fact, until the day we die, we're going to struggle with sin. So it's not like I've got faith, now I've got to work with my righteousness to, to please God. It is now I have faith, and I'm going to keep sinning. But I'm going to have more faith because I've got a greater Savior who is going to give me more grace at the end of the day. And Paul will say, does that mean we sin more so that grace may abound? No. But it's a recognition that this is going to be my existential reality and I must continue to rely on faith. Your desperation for faith will largely be determined by how deep you feel your sin. The deeper you recognize your sin the more you'll recognize your need of faith. It would be, I need thee. I need thee. Every hour I need thee because the sin is so great. The law can't save us. God's righteousness is too great. Sin is too powerful. But notice also in verse 24, God's grace is a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the bottom line. If you could earn your salvation, you would never earn it. If salvation could be a thing that is earned, heaven would be vacant. There would be nobody there. Nobody can earn it. No one is righteous enough. God didn't send his son to die on the cross to get you close. God wasn't saying, I'm going to go 99, you come 1. I'm going to go 90, you come 10. He would not have put his son through the cross just to get us close. Because if he could just get us close, there'd be people here who would say, but I came the one. And I don't know why my neighbor doesn't get it, but I came the one. I came the ten. And if you look down to verse 27 of chapter 3, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. If you brought something to the table of salvation, you would have something to brag about. But if you bring nothing to the table of salvation, then it's God who gets all the glory, not you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we we memorize this verse. We talk about it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Theologians debate, what is the this? And I'm in the camp that thinks this is Faith. So if, you, if you're hearing me this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, faith alone. So God does all this, but it's still me. It's still my faith. Faith is a gift. God gives you the faith by which you can believe. It's all of God. It's all of Christ. Solus Christus. Sola Dea Gloria. To the glory of God alone, because my salvation is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. 
So the law is too weak. God's righteousness is perfect. Sin is too strong. Grace is a gift. You cannot work to earn it, or else it's no longer grace. Finally, the triune God is our Savior. Look at verses 25 and 26. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These verses culminate Paul's view of the gospel. It is the death of the Son of God at the hand of the Father along with the Spirit that forms the cornerstone of the faith. And we've been talking a lot, obviously, this morning about faith, but the reality is what my paramedic friend got wrong is that faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. We hear a lot of people saying today, I just have faith in faith. Nonsense. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I hope as a Christian your mind is blown when you hear that, thinking that's the most gobbledygook answer. It's mumbo-jumbo. It makes no sense at all. Faith in faith. No, you had to have faith in something. All of you came in today and you thought, this chair will hold me. You didn't really do any calculations. You didn't perform a physics test on your chair. You had faith. When I sit down, I'm not going to plummet to the ground. Imagine for a moment, I'm going to check off an item from my bucket list. Now, this is not a real item. I don't care to ever do this. But I'm going to go jump out of an airplane. I turn 35 next year. Great time for midlife crisis. I'm going to go plummet out over the desert. But I tell you, I'm not really going to take a parachute. i got faith. I believe. I'm going to be fine. Now, I don't know most of you well, but I hope we're friends enough that you would stop me from doing that. Please tell me you would stop me from doing that, right? So you're not going to let me just go jump out of an airplane and and plummet to my death. Now let's say I, I found, I don't even know how you would rank this, I found the world's greatest parachuter. And I said, will you pack my chute for me? You might still think that's a dumb idea, but if you're going to do it, have the best parachute packer on the planet pack your chute so that my chute will open and I will gracefully come down to the earth. The death of Jesus to triumph over sins and his resurrection to triumph over death is the parachute that rescues us from hell, sin, and most importantly, the wrath of God. God sent his son to save us primarily from himself. We are saved from God. God is going to be the judge. God is the one who determines eternal destiny. God saves us from himself, by himself, to himself, for himself. And don't think, don't don't pit the father against the son here. Don't hear me saying that. God demonstrates his own love for you. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No, this is a plan of the Trinity for forever, to rescue souls for the glory of God. It's a measurable comfort, isn't it? So do you see? Do you see? Faith alone saves. God's law can't be met by our efforts. We need his righteousness. God's standard of righteousness is too great. We need that righteousness through faith. The power of sin is too great for us to overcome. 
Only faith can do that. God gives us salvation by grace. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. And God secures our salvation with the price tag of his son's life. You can do nothing. God alone is our savior. So hopefully you've heard me almost, I don't care if I sound like a broken record in your ears, to be honest, on repeat this morning saying, faith, 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 faith alone. You are empty-handed, impoverished, weak, small, and totally insufficient to save yourself. But we have a God who is full of grace, rich in mercy, strong to save, and totally capable of reaching down into this world through the incarnation of the Son to save us. What a remarkable God we have. Luther's thunderstorm reset the church in a manner of speaking. Faith in in Christ's work and God's gift of righteousness became the centerpiece of the gospel that set Europe and the world on fire. The fact that even today we're gathering to talk about this for the last 500 years, people have been remembering this gospel of salvation by faith alone. But just before Luther died, he scribbled on a piece of paper his very last words, half in German, half in Latin, Virzen Bettler. Hoc est verum. We are beggars. This is true. Recognizing what he came to know all those years ago as a younger man. It's faith alone. We're beggars. And God, through his great mercy and grace, reaches down to us. We, we begin by faith. We live by faith. We come to life's end by faith. We enter into the presence of the king by faith. Faith alone and Christ alone saves. But, but here's what I want to leave you with. Then faith goes away. We live by faith right now, but in eternity there's no more faith. There's sight. So if you've grown, if you've grown weary this morning, just keep walking a little longer. Just keep pressing in by faith, remembering that at life's final breath, it's sight. And we'll behold the Lord in his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a gospel that is centered on grace and faith, the remembrance that we cannot do this on our own. And why would we want to when we have such a great God who's done this for us? Lord, I pray for those who've never reached out by faith, that they'll reach out this morning, that you will give them the gift of faith and that their eyes will open and that they'll believe. Father, for those who are tired, Lord, for those who've just come in here At the bottom of life, it feels like. This week's been terrible. Old sins are creeping in. Marriages are failing. Lord, whatever it is, let them come back to you this morning in a way that you will just revive their heart and their soul around this idea that Christ cares for them, has died for them, and has saved them. We praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.